Welcome to Pete's Property Podcast, brought to you by Buyers Buyers and hosted by Pete Wargent, buyers agent, finance and real estate expert, and all-round property guru, plus published author. Join Pete for 30 minutes as he chats all things property with a new guest each week. Learn practical tips from the movers and shakers in the property industry and well-known personalities sharing their property journeys. G'day, welcome to this week's episode of the Pete Wargen Property Pod. I'm delighted today to have a special guest and an old friend on the show, uh, Dave Gow from Strong Money Australia. Dave, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Good to be here. So you're known these days as the uh, the king of the Strong Money Australia website. Tell us a bit about your background and your career, and then we'll come on to talk a little bit about what you do at Strong Money Australia and the FIRE movement. I suppose to go back to the beginning, I'm from a very small town in country Victoria. Uh, when I was about 18, I moved over to Perth for job opportunities. Essentially, this is this is like mid, what would that be? 2007, that would have been. And so the mining boom was in full swing and there was jobs everywhere for just about everything you can imagine. Um, and luckily for me, a lot of them were no experience required and no uh, essentially no skills required as well at that point. So I started working in a, in a sheet metal factory here in Perth and uh, worked there for a couple of years and then moved into another job, which was driving forklifts mostly and picking orders. So that was for a large distribution center here in Perth. And so I did that for about eight years and then basically pulled the pin after that. And so I've been uh, just uh, doing bits and pieces since then, which we can probably get into, I guess. Yeah, so I, I remember the uh, the days well, and in fact, I a few years ago now, but I did actually work in the mining industry around, uh, I guess, around the same time because uh, the time you could you could earn more in resources or by moving mm. to Western Australia as you did. I mean, you could more or less get a bonus for turning up to work some days. It was, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, full employment, which uh, I guess we're starting to see again now, uh, 15 years down the track. Um, but what kind of, um, if you don't mind sharing, what, you know, what kind of income did you earn in those kind of warehouse type jobs? Because uh, I guess what you're known for is creating financial independence, but were you pulling in a decent wage? Uh, so it was decent. It wasn't huge because I wasn't in mining, but uh, I'd say it was pretty decent. So it was about, for the second job anyway, the first job was relatively lower paid, but the second job that I did most of my career in, I'll say, was reasonably well paid. So I made on average maybe like 80000 per year, 80000 per year. And so there was um, there was some weekend work and a, and a bit of overtime as well, which kind of um, the overtime pushed it up higher if I if I did um, did a bit of that, which I, which I did do actually over the years. So it was pretty pretty decent income, and my partner was on a similar income in in the seventy thousand dollar range. Just uh, and that was in government admin. So neither of us had uh, fancy jobs or weren't well into the six figures or anything like that. But as as a household, that's still a pretty healthy income. Shows the power of uh, two incomes and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I- from memory, your investing journey started out in property. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you did there. 
It did. So uh, I suppose like most people, I was attracted to property as uh, the natural type of investment choice as opposed to shares because most of us feel a lot more comfortable, especially initially with property since we've had some experience with it and we kind of can see it and touch it and all those good things. So um, went down that road and invested in a few properties here in Perth first. So I saved quite hard at the um, job I was working at and was able to buy a few units here in Perth. Um, and my partner also bought a unit here as well. Uh, then we kind of we kind of joined forces more more seriously and then kind of combined our savings at that point and some equity in her house to buy more properties. But this time we did that in the eastern states. So we used buyers agents for those. And so we built up a, a reasonable portfolio over quite a number of years and yeah, it ended up being building a bit of equity over the years, as you might imagine, as well as having our savings added to the portfolio. And so we we're able to build up a pretty decent net worth over like, you know, the eight, nine, 10 year mark. Yeah, fantastic. Now, what you're known for today is being one of the stars of uh the FIRE movement, as it's known, financial independence, retire early. So tell us a bit about what the FIRE movement represents and um, how people might sort of go about uh, joining that movement. Sure. So I guess if we look at what it represents is behind the scenes, I guess you could almost call it like somewhat of a rebellion to the traditional 40 50 year career 40 50 hours a week so there's obviously a, a bunch of people myself being one of them that kind of came into the workforce and looked at that and thought no way that's that's not for me i don't <laughs> i don't uh that kind of lifestyle doesn't appeal to me i can't see my future in this uh in this factory which i had a moment there where i was kind of seeing my future i just couldn't couldn't see that um, being kind of acceptable for me at all. So that kind of idea was born. And I think that's quite common with people who go down this path of of pursuing financial independence. It's that's that's really what it's about is um beginning to look at money in a different lens, like in, instead of what can it buy me, what can this do for me in terms of maybe the time it can buy me rather than the purchases it can buy me. So, and that's what it's about at the end of the day. It's about using your money more effectively, um, saving and investing. Obviously, the fire movement tends to be known for being highly frugal, but it's, I mean, it's very optional. You can be as frugal or not as you like. As long as you're saving and investing, you're going to build up a reasonable net worth over time. And that uh, net worth and those investments that you do build can help you extract yourself from the full-time workforce and then you can semi-retire or fully retire or whatever you'd like to do hopefully at a much earlier age than 65 which is the norm yeah i think this is uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, for a lot of us uh, when you leave school or go to higher education there's a kind of a, a general viewpoint or suggestion that you should get a professional job you know join the workforce you pay into your super maybe buy a house and basically stick at it till you're 65. But uh, it's only sort of, uh, you know, these days, you know, you can do a lot more research on the internet and so on. And people come mm. across this idea that you don't necessarily have to follow that path and there are different ways to go about it. Now, I, I gather your journey was, 
you mentioned the property investment to start with. Um, so to sort of reach that financial independence, it was largely about controlling costs, increasing your savings rate, and then eventually rotating the investments away from property and towards the mm. stock market. Because I, I guess a lot of our listeners would be familiar, uh, residential property in particular, the yields aren't particularly high. And as we were we were chatting just before we started recording, because uh, the, there's always costs associated with property, uh, mm. property management fees, and then there's uh, rates and water bills and uh, repairs. There's always bits and pieces that chip away at the yield. But in the stock market, particularly in Australia, actually, um, you can generate a very nice income. So I guess, um, how did you go about uh, the transition from property towards the sort of more income generating assets? Yeah, it's a good question. So like you said, uh, we, we kind of got to this point that I mentioned earlier and we're, we're starting to notice, okay, there's a decent amount of equity in here, but we're actually getting zero sort of an income stream from it because all the expenses are really just cutting into it quite ferociously, essentially. So we took a look at the share market and realized, oh, if, you know, if our, our equity or savings was over here instead, we'd actually have a decent income coming in there. So at that point, it just became just became a process of deciding to sell a property and then slowly, so you could do it in a few ways. I guess you could sell a property and then just throw the big lump of cash or whatever you get after the sale. You could just throw it straight into the share market and start receiving the income. So what we decided to do is, uh, because we were also at this point realized we could quit our jobs essentially. So what we did was sell a property, use some of the money to live on, and then essentially dollar cost average or drip feed the money into the share market and build our portfolio at the same time. So we started doing it that way because that kind of felt more comfortable as well to do it, building it slowly rather than just throwing in a big lump sum into the market. So that was the kind of process that we used and we're still doing that to this day actually. We're selling a, a property every every couple of years or so and doing it that way and that also helps with taxes and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's an interesting insight because um, you often get people making sort of broad brush assumptions about about what the five movements actually means. But as you said, it's not necessarily an all or nothing thing. It could be, I mean, you could easily transition from a full-time job uh, into semi-retirement or you could go, you could do some contracting or part-time mm. work or, you know, it's not, not necessarily um, the case that you have to follow a set path and one minute you're working 50 hours a week and then you never work again. <laughs> there's, lots of, there's lots of assumptions that people seem to make that aren't necessarily true in the real world. Uh, so what what is it actually like in practice then to have reached financial independence? You know, what what are the kind of the benefits of having you know free time and being able to you know to choose what you do with your time? Yeah, it's 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 really huge, and well, that's one of the biggest things you mentioned. Is some people sometimes people think it's all or nothing. You're either if you if you're on this path, you quit your job, and then you're never allowed to work again. Which of course is like it's unrealistic, but it's also complete nonsense. Almost everyone that I'm aware of who's gone down this path and left the job has started doing something or other in the future afterwards that is often more meaningful or at least, at the very least, much more enjoyable than their previous role. 
that kind of tells us something in the sense that a lot of times people stay in jobs or positions they don't really like, but the money's good, so they stay there. Whereas I suppose once you remove money from the equation, you can start choosing your work and the things you spend time on, for that matter, based on whether it's really valuable to you or not, whether you genuinely enjoy it or whether you're actually just staying at that job for the money. So that's one of the benefits is being much more selective about what type of work you might choose to do at that point and how much of that work that you do. So maybe you would have a a better lifestyle than you do now working 30 hours a week, or maybe you would rather just work 10 hours a week doing whatever it might be and spending the other time on your health or with your family or spending it on uh, causes you care about and on various hobbies and different things that often get neglected because we're working and we're so busy all the time. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of it would come down to personality types as well. It was interesting. I, I caught up with an old um, school teacher a little while back, and he sort of said to me, said, you know, realistically, from from my sort of personality type, I was always a bit of a rebel at school, and I didn't like being told what to do. And he said, yeah, look, the sort of person who really should have just worked for themselves. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's that the personality type that's drawn towards freedom and a lack of constraints. And the thing I found was I actually really enjoyed some of my career as a chartered accountant, but just having to sit in an office for, as you said, 40, 50, 60 hours a week and just having to be in one place, it just doesn't, it just didn't gel with me at all. So uh, a bit, um, as you said, I mean, I, I pulled the pin on, my professional career at 33 but it's not you know I went traveling for a year or two but you know it wasn't like I was never going to work again it's yeah, just yeah. making a decision to do something more interesting and uh and as you said there's a lot of different ways you might go about it and I was very top heavy in uh property in my journey and the shares only sort of built up later on but if someone was uh starting out today uh Dave and they were thinking right I want to follow the path that you've uh, you've followed, and you you know they want to generate financial independence. If they were starting from scratch, would you what would you say about the sort of property versus shares debate? I mean, should they should people use a bit of leverage in property, or should they just go straight to the income producing stocks, or a bit of both, or does it depend on the individual? Yeah, it's a really good question, and. I don't think the bait will ever disappear, actually. I think it will be raging 10, 20, 30 years from now. So I suppose it does depend on whether that person has a very particular goal in mind. So if they had a shorter time frame in mind, like a decade or less, and let's say they were good at saving and they just wanted to build up some investment income relatively quickly and maybe then transition to some type of semi-retirement or something like that. I think shares would be a better fit for that type of person. But on the other hand, if you're someone who maybe can't save, so you may need the benefit of leverage and maybe forced savings of having a mortgage to um, to be able to generate any sort of wealth at all, that this is quite a decent uh, group of people, I would say. Um, and maybe they're not interested in creating freedom as soon as possible. Maybe it's more like, I would just like to have wealth in 15, 25 years or something like that, De- more like decades into the future, then property might be a much better choice for them because of the 
um, long-term wealth creation they can use uh, they can gain by using leverage um, and especially if they're not interested in reducing their work anytime soon do you want to save on buyer's agent fees you could save thousands with buyer's buyers as australia's most extensive network of buyer's agents we can lock in highly competitive prices Plus, our national network of buyer's agents are some of the best in the business. So get the buyer's buyer's advantage and talk to us today. Call 1-800-975-051 or visit buyersbuyers.com.au. A bit like yourself, we're a two-income household and I, my basic thought was, well, let's just use the borrowing capacity we've got well, we've got two incomes, so we went pretty heavily into uh, property in London and Sydney. And as you say, we you know we weren't necessarily the best savers in the world, uh, but it, they're very different asset classes, I guess. You know, if you're if you're a very disciplined saver and you can control your costs, then maybe going straight into the stock market could be a more efficient way to do it. I uh, let's talk a bit about um, how you generate an income. From the stock market, now, I don't want ASIC breathing down our necks, so uh, <laughs> I'll be <laughs> I'll be a little bit uh, bit careful. I mean, one of the things that um, I found um, harder in the stock market than I do in property is that there's more volatility in the market. Yeah. Now, some people are brilliant at switching off the market, don't sort of look at it every five seconds as I tend to, <laughs> um, and uh, they can sort of deal with the ups and downs. Um, but I, I guess uh, that most let's let's talk in general terms so we don't get in trouble. Uh, I guess most of the people in the fire movement would take an approach of using um, an index fund or a series of what they called ETFs. In other words, you're not necessarily trying to pick individual companies to mm. invest in, but it, owning a basket of stocks, which is uh, I guess well diversified not trying to be too smart and uh, outwit the market, You're just benefiting from the overall growth in the, the economy and profits over time. Mm. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that, but uh, we won't mention any specific products. Yeah, sure. So as you said, that that does tend to be the favoured uh, investment option for people going down this path of wanting to create financial independence relatively quickly and have a, I think part of it's having a relatively easy portfolio where there's basically nothing really to manage. There might be a couple of funds inside it. Those funds will spit out dividends in the range of maybe 3 or 4% per year. You might get some franking credits on top of that. Um, and like you said, it's diversified. So you've got a huge basket of stocks you might have Aussie stocks and international stocks and so you're you're invested in a range of different industries you might own banks and insurance companies and mining companies and your own tech companies and all the rest of it so you're kind of diversified right across and it's a really set and forget way to invest as well because you're not having to it's it's you're paying a small management fee and then the portfolio essentially takes care of itself. So it's much, much simpler in that regards, especially compared to property, I suppose, when you're liaising with um, property managers for various things. So it is very set and forget. 
And so most people will just throw their savings in there every every single month and watch the portfolio build. And as it builds, you'll get increasing amounts of um, income in, in dividend payments spitting back out at you because your ownership is increasing. And so that tends to be what people focus on, just building up those holdings and um, watching that passive income get bigger. Yeah, as you sort of uh, highlighted there, if, you, if your goal is uh, getting your time back, and independence you don't necessarily want to be spending 20 hours a week looking at the stock market and trading and researching <laughs> uh, i mean some people enjoy that and that's fine but uh you know if your goal is actually having more free time then uh, the sort of more passive approach um is definitely a very valid way to go i guess one of the questions uh that people would be grappling with is how much how do you know when you've got enough because uh I guess um, if you're going to, you know, you've got an, a lot of years potentially between uh, the traditional retirement dates and then you could live for another, who knows, 20, 30 years mm. beyond that. One of the uh, terms you see banded around is sort of the rule of 25 or, you know, explain to us like how do you go about um, understanding, well, how much is enough if you're going to uh, go down the, the fire route um, or do you, uh, I suppose you could always keep in mind that there's nothing to stop you doing some part-time work or earning another income stream. So how do you know when you've got to that point? Yeah, exactly. So I suppose the first thing you need to be quite conscious of or quite aware of is your how much your annual expenses are because everything kind of hinges around that number. So the rule of 25 or said another way, the 4% rule, which is just the 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 inverse of that essentially is just a general rule of thumb that that suggests that we need about 25 times our annual spending to retire and and that suggests that a diversified portfolio of say shares in this case can reasonably be expected to provide you a a sustainable income stream of of around about 4% per year so that's where you get your 25 times um, your 25 rule coming in there. And that's just based on studies that were done by um, some academics around long-term investment returns in different market environments, so high inflation, low inflation, world wars and all the rest of it. And I suppose you mentioned part-time income there and it's interesting because although it's kind of deemed as a as a generally safe rule of thumb, this 4% figure, there there is historic cases where investors would have depleted a portfolio following this kind of rule of thumb. And so that's what scares people is these outlier events where it is possible to kind of run down a portfolio. I suppose so, in theory, though, if the, you know if your portfolio took a hit, there's nothing to say you can't reduce your, your spending. And as you said, uh, maybe do a bit of earning on the side just to top things back up. Um, I think... Uh, one of the things um, for people like myself, we see we've got two kids, uh, which is obviously uh, makes predicting annual expenses is a bit harder. Mm-hmm. Plus, I don't really have much of a discipline for things like budgets. Um, yeah. And I think a, a third thing is that uh, yeah, we travel. You know, we travel quite. We fly long haul a lot, and uh, yeah, I, I dread to think the the price of long haul flights at the moment. So probably. Uh, not much change out of 20 grand for uh, return flights <laughs> to London. So the, the things like that potentially 
make things a bit a bit harder but it, a lot depends on personal circumstances do you have any saving tips for people who are thinking of going down this route i think uh i think back to my 20s i didn't really uh think i wasn't very sort of good at managing uh budgets largely because i used to go drinking too much which was, <laughs> that was a phenomenally expensive pastime but uh yeah. do, you, do you have a range of sort of saving tips that that people can follow yeah, sure. So it does depend on the individual and what they're willing to or what they're happy to cut out. Or you know, you'd you'd want to focus on not cutting the areas that are important to you. So for you, Pete, it might have been socializing. Mm. So you might have still kept a healthy amount of spending in that area. And maybe you cut back in other areas. Like maybe you weren't fussed about what kind of car you drove or if you even owned a car at all. Or maybe you weren't too concerned with what type of housing you had. So you, it's very flexible. You can cut from one area and add to another area depending on your own personal values. But generally, the biggest areas to save in are where we spend most of our money. So for almost all of us, that starts with housing and cars. And so the easiest way to reduce expenses in that area is to, well, what we did personally is to not buy new cars and avoid avoid car loans at all costs because essentially you're going to be uh, spending a lot more than the price of the car and then once the car is paid off, it's not really worth anything and so you'll buy another one and the cycle repeats itself. So that's one. And the uh, the housing is a big thing. So Housing is pretty important to us, but you want to be very mindful of what that really means in terms of how much of your life are you going to give up to pay off this house? And yeah, it's it's a big deal because you can saddle yourself with a big mortgage and have a lovely house, but you're essentially going to be working for the bank for the next 20 or 30 years to pay for it. So you want to be a bit mindful about how much house you choose to buy and what the cost looks like in terms of your monthly cash flow. Overseas travel, like you said, can be pretty expensive. So you might want to mix it up with your, like when you take annual leave from work, you might want to mix it up and say, okay, one year we'll have overseas trip, the next year we'll do a local trip and then another year we'll just take that time off and distribute those kind of days or weeks throughout the year so that we have more free time now while we're trying to save as well. And so if you spread those things out a bit, that'll reduce the cost by quite a surprising amount, I would say. Another one is probably eating out. Eating out has uh, restaurants and cafes have grown as a percentage of our spending quite a bit over the years and it seemingly has no upper limit and we're all I'm even I'm guilty of this and I'm supposed to be some frugal ninja but everyone's kind of <laughs> susceptible to it so I think just being mindful of what we're doing and trying to reduce those kind of areas because what I noticed is if you have uh, takeaway and coffee and everything every day, it becomes much less, you get much less enjoyment out of it because it just becomes routine. It just becomes habit. But if you save it for maybe twice a week or once a week or something like that, it becomes much more special. You actually get a lot more value from it, a lot more enjoyment out of it when it's not just a daily routine where you're running on automatic. So you can actually do something less and enjoy it more for for doing it less, which is actually surprising. But that might be something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, it's a good point. I think a really good tip is to try and remove uh, depreciation from your life. I heard uh, 
somebody talking about it on a podcast recently, and I, I've certainly tried to adhere to that a bit more in recent years by you know, buying cars that are a couple of years old and trying to you know, drive them for a, a bit longer. So you're not yeah. you're not getting huge amounts of depreciation for your personal balance sheet every year. Uh, I think, as you said, the housing, you know, housing is a big decision. You know, do, mm. do you take on a big mega mortgage to live in a certain area? or do you rent, or do you move somewhere a bit cheaper? One of the things I've noticed with interest on the, the YouTube channels these days is also the idea of international arbitrage, you know, people deciding to move somewhere that's a bit cheaper mm. and where the currency goes a bit further, but always a difficult decision, uh, yeah. that is, and particularly if you've got kids because then uh, schooling comes into the equation. And uh, let's not even mention school fees because uh, talking about <laughs> <laughs> talking about a potential sinkhole, that's a big one. I saw recently you wrote a blog post about uh, the ability to flex or the, the flex rate. Tell us a little bit about that concept. Sure. So it's nothing to do with flexing in the mirror, Pete. It's um <laughs> it's all about <laughs> it's all about flexing your finances essentially and your situation. So one of the fears that we spoke about earlier is people running out of money in retirement and essentially depleting a portfolio if the if the share market should have a terrible run over the first decade or so that you're you're in early retirement or regular retirement doesn't really matter and so one common sense solution is to i think you mentioned it earlier is to just earn a little bit of part-time income or spend a bit less while the market is down should you be going through a period like that. And so it can actually have a dramatic effect on how much a portfolio lasts and how much it grows over the years, especially in retirement. And so because of that, because of how much of a factor it can be, it can actually allow you to leave work with less than you thought if you're willing to be flexible. And so it does depend on how flexible you're willing to be and so when i wrote about this flexibility concept the metric that i'm using is called the flex rate and so this is essentially how much of your current spending is flexible so how much can you cover if you need to of that spending with either part-time income or with reducing your current expenses so let's say you currently spend fifty thousand dollars per year if you were able to, if you had something like $15,000 worth of wiggle room in your situation, then you essentially have a flex rate of 30%. And so that's actually pretty powerful. And so I, I went into lots and lots of detail on the blog. It was, it was a pretty long blog post, actually, with all these different scenarios. And so, yeah, it, it tends to be huge. Like if you're able to be flexible when the market happens to be down and you're living off a portfolio. A proper downturn, not not like one we're having now, but like a, a real one. Yeah, it tend it turns out that you'll you'll generally be completely fine depending on how much you're able to how much flex you have in your situation. And so I think it's an, a really important concept because I just hate seeing people clinging to a full-time job essentially out of fear because they're not sure what the future holds, which is fair enough. But you you know, by being a little bit flexible, you can actually take a lot of power put a lot of power back into your situation by being willing to adjust a few things if you need to, depending on what kind of environment you find yourself in. Yeah, I think we can forgive you the 
long blog posts as you've got plenty of time on your hands these days. (laughs) I guess um, to do a bit of reading on the internet, there seems to be a lot of misconceptions about the fire movement. And I hear a lot of people say, well, that can't be done. You can't do it. And I guess like some other people actually enjoy uh, their job or the the status um, or the, the routine that that employment can bring and um yeah so it's not necessarily for everybody but i, I guess a lot of it entails uh just thinking a bit differently about the world and your finances so tell us what do you do in your spare time you know what's your normal week look like these days and can you believe what was it like you know when you first that first week when you didn't go back to work you know can could you actually believe that you were doing it or did it feel kind of <laughs> surreal uh, it's funny you say that because for probably the first three weeks, I would say my partner and I would kind of, you know, we'd sit out, sit outside in the sun and have a coffee, and then we'd wander around the house for a bit and do various things, and then we'd look at each other like it feels like we're doing something wrong, like something naughty, like we're not <laughs> supposed to be doing because obviously everyone else is at work. It almost it didn't feel real, um, like you said. So it was very strange to get hard to get used to. No, actually, I won't say it was hard to get used to, but it was actually very strange in the beginning. You feel like you're, you feel like you're somehow cheating or somehow doing something you're not supposed to. Um, but I, yeah, I did find quite a bit of a groove, and so I'm not planning to return to full time work anytime soon. How I spend my time is we have a dog, so I like to spend lots of time with our dog, going for walks each day, and so I've taken up writing like. Uh, we covered with the blog there. So I actually spend a fair bit of time doing that and it's something that I really enjoy. So it's something I'll continue. I also do some conservation work here actually with the local turtles. There's a big lake nearby and so I've been kind of helping out the local turtles and recently helped a um, a PhD student doing some some studies on the local turtles and their environment. So that's that's been pretty interesting and pretty um just feels valuable to be a part of and and kind of helping something that's that's bigger than yourself a bigger cause and so those are a couple of things that I really like doing but it's more to me it's more about the freedom to choose how you spend your time and what you spend your time on so i just like living a pretty laid back lifestyle where i can go and meet a friend for coffee at lunchtime or whatever or if i want to go and um, just go and hang out at the shops or go to the beach or something. I can go and do that whenever I like. And so you're you're not you're not restricted by what you can and can't do in, in a typical week or in a typical day because you've got so much flexibility in your lifestyle. And that's what I really like about it. Yeah, it sounds ideal uh, enjoying those uh Western Australian uh winters and summers. I uh I guess uh, one of the amazing things that's really changed since the nineteen nineties is um just the, all of the, the abundance of information that's now yeah. available. You know, if you're interested in the fire movement or making radical changes to your finance, I mean all of the information you could possibly need is there. You've got to go out and seek it. Um as you mentioned you spent a lot of time building up a an amazing uh, database of information that's uh, just available for free. So uh, where can people go if they want to learn a bit more about Strong Money Australia and how to go about achieving financial independence? Yeah, thanks, Pete. So the website is strongmoneyaustralia.com and so there they'll find 
uh, various articles and podcasts on all things relating to saving, investing, mindset, and financial independence in general. Fantastic. So, um, well, thanks uh, so much for coming on, David. Don't want to uh, eat up too much into your busy week. I should uh, <laughs> let, let you get back to uh, coffee on the deck and your conservation work. So, uh, yeah, thank you uh, so much for joining and um, always enjoy uh, subscribing to your blog and getting the updates. Um, so much information there that's available for free and um, look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening to Pete's Property Podcast, powered by Buyers Buyers. Don't forget to subscribe and join us next time as Pete chats all things property with a new guest. And just a reminder that the information provided in this podcast is general advice only and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation or needs. You should always consult a licensed professional to discuss your individual personal circumstances.